Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. Every time I go back to the books, I see something new. Every age, every experience that I've made it through, uh, it gives me a new way into those senses. And there are a lot of books that we love, but that we can't really imagine rereading with the same level of love, I think. And for me, that makes Austin just really remarkable. Stephanie Lozer has dedicated her teaching and her books and so much of her life to connecting through literature and Jane Austen, even when it comes to her personal life, her marriage to Austen scholar George Justice, and her roller derby career as Stone Cold Jane Austen. Stephanie Lozer is our guest today on The Austen Connection. And we're talking about the stories of Jane Austen, how they connect to us today and connect us to each other. Right now, Devaney Lozier is working on a new book due out from Bloomsbury next year. It's called Sister Novelists, Jane and Anna Maria Porter in the Age of Austin. It's about two sister novelists writing, innovating, and breaking rules in the Regency and beyond. Devaney Lozier is also the author of The Making of Jane Austen. And full transparency here, I'm lucky enough to call Devaney Lozier a friend. We met as professors on a campus in Missouri. So this is a continuation of conversations that Devaney Lozier and I have had for years, walking and talking and encompassing multiple places and spaces from campus coffee houses to my family's century farm in Missouri and even to London. And in the past year, multiple Zoom brainstorms like this one. So we picked up these years-long conversations, beginning with a simple question I don't know if I'd ever asked her. Here it is. So let me just start, if you don't mind, with a couple of just questions about your personal Austin journey. What Austin did you first read? When did you discover Austin? Do you remember which book and which time and place? Absolutely. And this is a question that I really enjoy. That's it's, it's a kind of conversion question, right? It's like, when, it's like, it's like if, if we were having this conversation. When in we a religious, again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, so I love that this is where we start in the secular literature saturated community mm-hmm. of, I mean, for many people come to it with different kinds of questions, but I do have my awakening moment. <laughs> and, okay, uh, when was your awakening? I, I think this is a common story for a lot of Janeites, which is why the story resonates. It was my mother who handed me a copy of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice Bound Together. I, I now have this book. It was um, a modern library edition of both of those novels that was published in the 50s. And she handed it to me because she said, I, she knew I was a reader, she knew I loved to read, and she said, here's one that I think you should read. We had books from uh, her childhood or from church book sales in our house. We had a lot of books in our house. And I started to try to read it and I really stumbled because I could not get at the language. But she was insistent. She kept kind of putting it toward me, putting it at me and saying, I think you should read this one. And I think it was maybe around the third time I tried it. it Pride and Prejudice is what I started with. And it just really took, you know, it was like, oh, wait a minute, this is kind of funny. And, you know, and I like these characters and I like the story. So after I got my PhD, I learned that my mother had actually never read Pride and Prejudice before. And to me, that actually made her giving it to me even more meaningful. Uh, She is not college educated. She wanted me to have an education. 
And the idea that Austin could be handed down from mothers to daughters, even mothers without an education, to say, here's a way for you to have access to more opportunities is what the books are about too, in a way, right? I mean, the mothers aren't always the ones doing it in the books. In fact, they're often not. But the books are functioning as that, opening up worlds, opening up possibilities, and opening up education, self-actualization. You know, that that this is, to me, meaningful, that my mother knew that this is a book that educated girls should read and that she wanted it for me. She was tapping into something that she hadn't had herself and just trying to to give that to you. That's awesome. So what, I mean, you're a professor, scholar, writer. You could focus on a lot of writers, and you do. <laughs> At the moment, you're focused on other, you know, novelists, sister novelists. Um, but what attracts you to the conversations about Jane Austen and teaching Jane Austen, and you've got the great courses. What attracts you to Jane Austen now as a grown-up scholar? I think the thing about Austin that keeps me coming back to her is how rereadable she is. And lots of people say this in the critical community and the Janeite community alike, with scholars and Janeites alike. But I think even anyone who picks her up casually, having not read her in 20 years or never read her before, there's a complexity there on the level of a sentence, paragraph, plot that is really, uh, to me, enriching, I guess, or uh, generative. You know, it generates uh, ideas. And every time I go back to the books, I see something new. Every age, every experience that I've made it through uh, gives me a new way into those sentences. And there are a lot of books that we love, but that we can't really imagine rereading with the same level of love, I think. And for me, that makes Austin just really remarkable. The idea that you can go back to her, you know, every year, a lot of uh, people who love her books read her every year, all six every year. Do you do you know that joke from Gilbert Ryle, the philosopher? No. Okay, the philosopher Gilbert Ryle was asked. Uh, this is, you know, a century ago. Asked, sir, do you do you read novels? And he said, yes, I do, all six every year. Uh, so he, yeah, <laughs> no, I've he, never heard that. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a, a good Jane Eyre in joke, right? That the the only novels there are, are these six. Obviously not true, uh, but. <laughs> There are even other Jane Austen novels. Exactly. Exactly. Ralph was not thinking as capaciously as he should have been with her own with her fiction. Uh, but the rereadability is how I would would answer that. So I mean, Jane Austen can be, like you say, kind of adapted to your life as you go through different things in life. Um, but you, you with the making of Jane Austen, have really documented how not only individuals can adapt. Jane Austen to their lives, but movements <laughs> can adapt Jane Austen to their causes and uh, what they're and just what's going on in the culture. And we see that in kind of exciting ways. Can you talk a little bit about why have why are her novels so adaptable throughout the last couple of hundred years? So, and I, t- I know you know this. I talk about this in the making of Jane Austen about the the ways that various people of very different political persuasions find a reflection of their values or questions or concerns in her novels. So she's been used to argue opposing sides of political questions for 150 years and probably longer. I think this is partly to do with the fact that her novels and her fiction open up questions more often than they close them. And I think it's her relationship to the didactic tradition in her day, the moralizing tradition. I think she's really stepping outside of that and more interested in 
gray areas than in declaring what's right and what's wrong. So I think this is a beautiful, complex thing about her novels. And they're novels of genius to my mind, and I'm not afraid to use that word. <laughs> but they also present certain kinds of really interesting uh, challenges because you can't go to them and say, what should I think? They, they don't really answer that question for you uh, in, in as clear a way, I think, as other kinds of didactic fiction where there's a clear moral outcome. This person's punished with death or uh, you know, or some kind of tragic outcome, or this person's rewarded and it's all going to be, you know, happily after and nothing ever is going to go wrong. Her novels are working outside of that to some degree. So I do think that that's one reason why people of very different experiences and political persuasions and motivations come to her novels and they can be kind of like a Rorschach test, right? They can, you, can, mm -hmm. you can see what you want to see in the designs to some degree. Now, I do think people can get it wrong. I think you can find, you know, there are arguments <laughs> that people make that I think there is absolutely no textual evidence for that whatsoever. Uh, but oftentimes I can look at someone coming to a conclusion that might be different from the one that I reach and say, well, I, I see where you can get that from emphasizing this point more than this one or seeing this passage as the crucial one instead of another passage. It's also occurring to me listening to you, Devonu, that she sort of makes people think in ways that might be uncomfortable, she must be one of the few novelists that can actually make you in, draw you to her story, draw you in and draw you to that narrator, um, but also be uncomfortable maybe with what she's giving you. And maybe we just step around the discomfort, some of us. Yeah. Do you think that's tr an accurate way of, of thinking about Jane Austen as well? I think that's beautifully put. And, you know, I think, too, we can read her novels on many different levels. If you say, I want to go into this for a love story that's funny with a happy ending, mm -hmm. which is what many people who read in the romance genre know the formula, and they're going to it because they like the formula. And it might have different things, <laughs> different component <laughs> parts, but you know that at the end, you're not going to be distressed and dealing with something tragic, right? So when you go into an Austen novel, the kinds of discomfort you're describing, you know that they will be there along with something happy too. So I think you could, you could just read it for the happy ending. I see that as a real uh, lost opportunity because I think the happy endings are tacked on from genre expectation about comedies. If you're focusing on the happy ending, you're missing all the important stuff that's happening all along the way. Uh, and that's the uncomfortable stuff, right? The stuff about family conflict, economics, uh, you know, all of the kinds of ways that people are terrible to each other that are, you know, maybe borderline criminal or actually criminal, but everything below that too, that's more mundane. The way that people mistreat each other that is wrong, if not criminal. And that to yes. me is what makes these novels, what makes these novels uncomfortable, is that even those people who are doing terrible things usually get away with it. Mm. Yes. If you said to people, a lot of people, you know, here's a novel about the insult and injury endured by women because of class and gender, and possibly you can add race and disability and a lot of other boundaries in there, you know. I don't know how many people would <laughs> would see that as Jane Austen, but there's that subtext. Do you, Daphne, do you, it seems like when I'm writing these 
kind of essays, letters, just kind of my thoughts and rereading. And the more I read and reread Jane Austen and just stay really close to the text, the more I kind of find myself relying on Gilbert and Gubar and their cover story. Um, and it's, you know, I've, I read that a long time ago, so it's probably influencing my reading. <laughs> I say close to the text, but it's close to the text that's very influenced by what I already have read of you. And uh, is it Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar? Yes. Um, do, you, do you agree? How much do you think, because you know Austin's life, you might, you know her letters and the, the text and you teach them. How much do you think she was consciously or even unconsciously saying stuff in all that meandering within that courtship plot that, and then within that happy ending plot that you just described? How much do you think was going on with that cover story? So I, I want to first start with the end of this, which is to say, I think every sentence is saying something else. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> and okay. not, not like it's a secret or there's something, you know, okay. I think there, there are people who will say that this is a, a code for a completely other world below the surface. I'm not sure that I would go there, but I, I do right. think, I do think that these are novels that are trying to get us to investigate not only who the characters are, but who we are. And so that there's always something else going on in any human conversation, right? <laughs> you know, there's always something else going on. And I think she captures that in the conversations among her characters, uh, that they can be having the same conversation, but with such varying motivations that it, you can see it and it becomes humorous. You know, Henry Tilney in Northanger Abbey talking to Mrs. Allen about uh, Catherine Moreland's chaperone about muslins, that whole conversation about clothing and shopping. You can you can read that as a, a love of fashion. You can read it as an indictment of consumer culture. You can read it as a kind of uh, gender cosplay, or you can read it as an indictment of femininity. I mean, there's just, it's on so many different levels within the same conversation, and you can try to understand how these characters are arguing with each other. So I think in some ways, what you're, what you're getting at is, yes, there's something beneath the surface. Why I think so, Mad Woman- So what it isn't, it, it, it isn't just a conversation about Muslim. Exactly. That's <laughs> the one thing you can be sure of. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the text that you brought up, Gilbert and Gilbar's Mad Woman in the Attic, I think that was in, came out in 1979, incredibly important book because a lot of second wave feminism, 60s and 70s, had said Jane Austen is not a primary author for us or not an author that can be as important to the second wave because these novels end in marriage. And it was a moment in the feminist movement where looking for something that expressed anger, that expressed alternative uh, lifestyles was seen as more important than reinforcing heteronormativity, which is what Austin was imagined as doing. So I think what Gilbert and Gubar did is allowed for feminists and feminist critics, feminist scholars, and people beyond that circle to look at Austin and say, what if we didn't emphasize the ending? What if we emphasized the other parts of this story? And of course, they took that to a lot of other different texts. Mad One in the Attic is actually a reference, as you know, to Jane Eyre, right? And to Bertha right. Mason. And yeah. it, what if you read Jane Eyre and you centered Bertha Mason, which is of course exactly what Jean Rhys did in her novel, Wide Sargasso Sea. But Gilbert and Gubar gave us a framework to say, let's look at the parts of these novels 
uh, from a feminist perspective that maybe we haven't focused on. And I think it opened up so much possibility for Austin, uh, reading it through that lens of saying, maybe there's more here than the ending. Maybe there's more here than heteronormativity. Yep. <laughs> you know, this, this is a, a, a lot more going on. And I'm really grateful to that book for doing that. I do think there is some tendency now to turn it all into, well, it doesn't mean this, it means this exactly the opposite. To me, that's doing exactly what we shouldn't be doing, <laughs> which is closing right. down the text. Okay, yeah. you hear, here's a clue, now we'll find an answer, now we've got this new clue solved, next mystery. Th these are yes. not mysteries with solutions. They are uh, moral quagmires, and you can't mm -hmm. solve a moral quagmire with a fact or an answer. I love that. The, I love the way you say, don't shut down the text <laughs> from Devony Lozer people. Don't shut down the text. So I love the way you describe that 1979 Mad Woman in the Attic, uh, because you're right. They were just, I guess, at a time when, you know, f feminism was wearing Doc Martens and reading Hemingway and reading, you know, Kate Millett, right? Kate Millett, sexual <laughs> politics. Let's find the sexism. It was yes. a sexism identification moment, which was really important because a lot of people couldn't see it until mm -hmm. people like Millett and others said, oh my gosh, there's sexism here in every single book. How do we not notice this? Uh, you know, or right. every single piece of great literature, quote unquote. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, and, and they were saying, these are women's lives. Like, let's interrogate what's happening with these stories by women about women really going in depth in their lives and they happen to be genius as well you know Devani you also say in your book the making of Jane Austen that Jane Austen has in many ways been the making of you this is getting back to you a little bit Devani um in what ways has Jane Austen been the making of you I know a few of those ways but why did you write that and what were you thinking well I, I think Again, this, the reason this story resonates with people is because all of us who care about literature and who allow books to lead us places probably have moments like this. Mine is slightly more bizarre than most people's in that I now make a living from reading Jane Austen. And as you said, I read lots of other things too. I read Jane Austen in the context of the history of women's writing, which has been a very uh, opening up of territory for me as a scholar, and I hope leading people to read outside of her. But I've also been uh, able to create a romantic life that started around conversations with her. And I know you know this, that I met my husband, George Justice, who's also an Austin scholar. We met over a conversation and an argument on Jane Austen's books. Uh, you, know, you, you and I've had a chance to talk Remind about me, this. What were you arguing about now again? What were you arguing? What book? Was it Mansfield Park? It was Mansfield Park. So my husband, George, and I were introduced at uh, right before a cocktail party that I was crashing, by the way. A friend of mine said, you should come along. <laughs> and uh, George had actually been invited. And we had a, a brief conversation that, that ended. But he came in and found me because somebody said to him that I had worked on Jane Austen. And so he said, I hear you work on Jane Austen. What's your favorite Jane Austen novel? And I know you know George Shannon, so you 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 know that this is he he likes to ask ask these kind of puncturing questions, right? So it was well, like, yes. hey, <laughs> uh, yeah. And we also coincidentally, and this is like my biggest claim to fame, perhaps went did the same graduate course at UCL. So I'm hearing a British when you say that. There's like a little bit of that British education. It yeah. has to be an argument. 
So yes. Yeah, so what did he say in that British punctuating way? So he said, "What? What? I hear you work on Austin. What? What do you? Uh, what's your favorite?" And I said, "Well, my the one that I'm working on right now is Northanger Abbey." And he said, "I didn't ask you which one you're working on. I asked you which one's your favorite." <laughs> Uh, I mean, he heard that I was working on it, but he wanted he wanted me to make an aesthetic, you know, he wanted me to make a judgment about which one's the best. He's right out of uh, Austin. Oh, uh, yes. It's like a challenging, it's difficult uh, man. Yeah, it's like it's out of Winston. It's metropolitan is what it's out of. But uh, I didn't quite <laughs> yes. know that at the time. Uh, anyway, so uh, he's I, I said, well, I guess my favorite is Pride and Prejudice. And George said very proudly, well, my favorite is Mansfield Park. I couldn't wait to tell you. <laughs> and, well, yeah, well, he was he was cute and it was flirtatious and there was a lot of smiling yes. and laughing, you know. So I'm, I'm yes. making it sound like it was less pleasurable than it was in the moment. But uh, oh, it sounds very pleasurable. <laughs> and so I said, "Well, Mansfield Park is my least favorite, and I mm. I like it the least because I don't like the heroine. Uh, Fanny Price is too much like me. She's boring." You and, said that. Yes. And, and George said at that moment that he said to himself in his head, uh, I'm going to marry this woman. Uh, so that you, you really need to hear his side of it, as I know you have, to, uh, to get that part of it. I just thought this guy's kind of needling me <laughs> and I'm, being, I'm shutting down his needling with, uh, you know, uh, disarming honesty and sarcasm. But, you know, I, I do mean it. I did at the time I really felt like a very shy person and a quiet person and I had more class sympathies with Fanny Price of all of Jane Austen's heroines mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't like those parts of myself I didn't like being quiet and timid and didn't didn't uh, appreciate her as a character I think in the way that I now do anyway that's so crazy but he did end up proposing to me that night and I said <gasps> uh, yes he asked me to marry him and I said no I said i I don't believe in the institution of marriage, but what I, what I can say is that he was very persuasive, and within about a month we were we decided we'd have a, a Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill style secret engagement, and we got married. We got married about a year later. So he was very George That's was very persuasive. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. That's awesome. I did not know that he had proposed and that you had declined uh, on that same evening. That's interesting. And I, I love it that you relate to Fanny Price and find that kind of complicated. Uh, now, I have to say, you have told me that story, Devaney, and I had forgotten the details about Fanny Price, but I learned them again um, from the First Impression podcast, uh, where they were talking about you on that podcast <laughs> and that you related to Fanny Price. And uh, that got me thinking about who people relate to in Jane Austen novels. And I feel like Jane Austen is putting herself, I feel like all authors for much of the time are putting themselves in not just the, the positive aspects of characters, but, and I think you can take that too far. It's like Jane Austen isn't in any, any character in any of her novels, but there's, but she's also in every character, right? She's even probably in Mrs. Norris a little bit, you know? Um, think of your worst person you know there's a part of her that wants to be lady bertram probably you know and there's yeah. certainly a part of her that's fanny price and there's certainly a part of her that's emma who's also a difficult character um and so anyway i love that that you were trying to figure out does george love fanny price i think george loves underdogs who triumph 
And I think to him, uh, he, he likes the idea of people who weren't born to it sticking up for themselves. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he, he likes the idea of there being greater opportunity for people who, who weren't necessarily born to opportunity. And I think that's the story of his, his grandparents and his parents. So I think that's where he came to a love of that particular plot <laughs> out, of, uh -huh. out of stories from his own family. So Interesting. Would, okay. Well, he should okay. answer that though. He should answer this that. This is another me. podcast. <laughs> I already have George on my list because I have loved the the Emma, the Norton Critical Edition of Emma, and I know he put that together, edited that, and I want to talk to him about Emma. Um, and I, I'm also going to have to ask him what he thinks of Fanny Price. Well, and, and he's Man working on a new book on Austin now. He's returning really? to that, so he'd, he'd be thrilled to talk to you. I know for sure, Janet. That's uh, wonderful. I'm really jealous. I think the um, somebody, and it might have been the first Impressions podcast, actually talked to both of you. Yes. <laughs> I, I haven't even listened to that yet, because I was just like, I'm going to save that. <laughs> but I really look forward to listening to it. Another like great to podcast. Another great podcast. Uh, yeah. And the, the hard part with when George and I do this together is that we've told these stories so many times that we don't necessarily let each other have our own lines. So we're all it's like on the stage when you're all, you know, you're sort of stepping on each other's uh, cues and, you know, we, it's, sometimes we're in sync and sometimes we're not. This is the Austin Connection. We're talking with professor, writer, scholar, and roller derby extraordinaire, Devony Lozier, about life and love and Jane Austen. Devony brings her passion for Jane Austen to the classroom, to her life, to her marriage, as you heard. In this next part of the conversation, we talk about how Jane Austen straddles two worlds, high culture and pop culture, and how Devony herself also participates in both of those worlds. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. So we are talking about, we've been talking about, you know, the, the way people take on Jane Austen for their causes. You also talk about the fact that, that Jane Austen has sat very well and has kind of carried pop culture and high culture simultaneously. Almost maybe like almost no other uh, artist, maybe Shakespeare, you know, can carry those two at the same time. And you also walk both of those worlds. Can you talk a little bit about that? How are we doing with those two things right now? I mean, Jane Austen's probably bigger than ever before, right? Today? And are we kind of bringing the high culture, the scholarly, and the fandom together in interesting ways and in productive ways? Yeah, that's, that's like such a great question. And the greater than ever before, quite possibly, if only because of how communication is greater than ever before, right? You know, yeah. uh, uh, I think Jane Austen, Jane Austen is, TikTok. Is, yeah, she's global in a way that just sort of pre-internet, pre- TikTok, which I am definitely to the side of, <laughs> but uh, you know, before all of these kinds of ways, she couldn't have been global in quite the same way. Uh, but there were uh, moments where she definitely popped in popular culture before now. You know, millions of people saw that Broadway play in 1935 that moved to the West End in London the next year. Mm -hmm. You know, there, this was a, another moment of Austin pop culture saturation, uh, where I think if we were able to compare it then to now, we might say she was in the in the imagination and the cultural imagination to a pretty great degree 
in these other moments too. But let's not go there. You're asking, now I'm in the weeds. Now I'm in the scholar's weeds, arguing in terms of the question. <laughs> no, it's great. So that's terrible. Uh, but, but I do think there is something about being in both worlds that really speaks to my sense of our responsibility as scholars to be educators, but also to be trying to understand uh, the world outside of the academy and seeing that as a talking across, not a talking down. And there are moments where it's easier for scholars to remember that than others, <laughs> but the, the talking across has really made new scholarly ideas possible for me. Uh, this, this is a, a divided identity. I think you're capturing that accurately in how you described it, Janet, but I want to make sure that I'm saying it's not a one-way street for me that I have, mm -hmm. when we talk about teaching those of us who are educators, we talk about learning from our students and people often roll their eyes at that because it's yeah. the teacher's responsibility to teach, right? You know, the teacher's supposed <laughs> to be, uh, but I, I think back to uh, an old classic in educational theory, uh, Paulo Ferreira's Pedagogy of the Oppressed where he talks about differently located learners. And the Jainite community through Jasna has definitely brought home to me the ways that differently located learners can inspire each other and teach each other. And I think that is just really, really crucial. And I love that Jane Austen has made this possible. You know, we're in a way we're talking a lot of what we're talking about is her image, you know, and and how you know there's a lot under the surface of the the courtship and the marriage plot. But you've researched this and written about it in the making of Jane Austen. What in what ways did her family contribute to this image? Can you talk a little bit about that and why? Why why were they trying to create, if I have this right, a respectable sort of Aunt Jane? lady is this do you feel like this is what she also would have perhaps wanted i mean cl class insult class injury can be humiliating you know and i feel like perhaps she also louise may alcott some of these women writers who were writing for money maybe did wanted to be seen first and foremost as respectable what do you think was going on with the family members painting her image yeah, I think this is a really difficult multi-layered question. And I, of course, have different ways of answering this. But I think that the ways that her family described her were trying to head off criticism. Okay. And I think if, if you look at the ways that women writers were treated in this period, you can understand why they wanted to head off the criticism. They very much wanted her not to be seen as strident blue stocking, morally suspect. Uh, they very much wanted to put her on the side of her family now, and maybe herself, I think it's hard to know, on the side of the polite, the proper, the, the ladylike, unmarried, the good aunt, right? This is what comes out. Not the bitter spinster, not the mm -hmm. ugly woman who couldn't get married or who was having all sorts of morally questionable behaviors with men. <laughs> Right. But but the woman who was very much on the, the doing the femininity, quote unquote, right for the 18 teens and the 1820s. So at first, I think that's what her family is up to. And the extent to which she would have been excited about that, I don't know. But it does seem quite possible that she would have endorsed staying to the side of that because there, there, it was, you know, in the, in the same way that 
70s feminists brought us to see the ways that language was about virgins and whores, right? <laughs> you know, this, not that no one yes. had ever noticed this, but I think uh, second wave feminism, the women's studies classes made us look at the words that were used to describe women and their sexual experiences and say, wow, this is really unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think yes. if we take that and we move that conversation back 150 years, I think the Austins were wise to the fact that you were not allowed to be anything other than one or the other. And it was very clear what you wanted to be. If your choice was to be castigated as the woman writer who is more virgin-like or the woman writer who is more whore-like, of course you wanted to be on the side of the virgin. It's, it's a crime that this existed, right? <laughs> it's a linguistic crime. But if you're a family trying to negotiate the reputation of your relative at the same time that some of you are uh, clergymen and you know trying to make your way forward in polite society, titled society, elite society, of course, what you want your public woman because that's already a question mark, right? Ooh, she's a public woman. Those words aren't supposed to go together. You want to put her to the side of the one who wasn't looking for money, the one who wasn't looking for fame, the one who wasn't too learned. She was, she was nice. She was doing this for her family. She wasn't doing this for fame or for money. Or you, you see that already you're talking about sides of a question where putting your eggs in one basket results in a different outcome. So the extent to which Austin herself wanted that, what would be desirable of being on the other side of that? Very little. Right. Listening to you talk makes me really understand that so much more and also realize that in a way they were doing what Jane Austen seemed to do with her novels, which was to keep herself out of it. And maybe she's not as out of it on, you know, the third and fourth rereading as we thought as she was on our first rereading, but she's she is kind of keeping herself out of it and just letting the story, letting the characters say what she really doesn't want to be seen saying, particularly, yeah. perhaps. So. And Jenna, I know you know that I'm working on two contemporaries of Jane Austen. Yes. Jane and Anna Mariah Porter. Porter. Yes, I'm writing this book, Sister Novelist, uh, Jane and Anna Mariah Porter in the Age of Austen. And where for Austen, we have 161 letters of hers have survived. So when we try to say, what did Jane Austen think the, the novels give us a certain amount to go on, but a lot of us say, well, what did she say in her letters where we can assume that she was being more of a quote unquote authentic self? The question to which any of us are authentic selves in letters and emails <laughs> might, be, <laughs> might be another question, but or text, right? But, or podcast. Uh, or podcast. <laughs> uh, but I think we can assume in her letters, uh, we could see some things, especially her letters to her sister, Cassandra, some things right. about her that were probably the more- The arsonist. Right, right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could talk about that for two minutes or two hours too, right? Uh, the destruction of the letters. But the idea that we only have 161 of these to go on. Mm -hmm. For the Porter sisters, these they were both novelists and they wrote thousands of letters, which they painstakingly wow. preserved. And so to be able to go through these thousands of letters between these two sisters who are uh, looking at literary culture through the eyes of uh, public women and literary women and looking at the ways that they describe the things that they want people to believe and what they're actually doing behind the scenes <laughs> has been really illuminating for me. Oh. And, and I hope other people will be uh, interested in reading about that too. People who are interested in Austin, people who are interested in the early 19th century and Regency culture, Victorian culture, because the Porter sisters lived longer than Jane Austen did. 
the ways that they try to navigate making decisions with agency and with specifically with female agency and romantic agency in a culture that said that the, you know, as Austin puts it, their only power should be the power of refusal. And they, the, the Porter sisters were doing things all the time that you weren't supposed to do. <laughs> and we know it because they were writing about it with each other. They were innovators in historical fiction. And Jane Porter claimed, I think with, with some accuracy, that she was the one who influenced and inspired Sir Walter Scott's Waverley, which was published in 1814. By that That's point, awesome. By that point, well, she'd published two historical novels. Wow. You had us at hello. Like these are <laughs> sisters writing to each other during the Regency and beyond, it sounds like, right? Mm -hmm. And just they have each other. They're doing historic fiction. I mean, I just think hashtag Regency is <laughs> going to blow up um, over these two sisters. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks, Janet. I'm excited about it, as you can tell. <laughs> Yay. I mean, it, it is. It's really cool. But I just feel like there is a hunger to broaden out these conversations. And you can see it. The conversations are being broadened out in such exciting ways, especially right now, like um, books like The Woman of Color. And, you know, and then every conversation we can have about Bridgerton, like anything to do with the Regency and um, people's lives and the Regencies, and especially lives that we're sort of uncovering and that have been overlooked. Um, women writers, black citizens of the Regency in Britain, and uh, it's it's just, and, and so many others. It's just really exciting. So I feel like there's a hunger for these conversations. I feel like it's going to be very, very engaging. Thanks. I hope so too. And I, I think it's absolutely crucial and important that we start to try to understand race relations in the early 19th century and think about why we care about them so much now. That's what literature should do. I, I, I get really frustrated when people want to tell us that uh, we're taking questions from the present and popping them back falsely under the past. This is not at all what we're doing. <laughs> Things are popping in our moment that we can see we're also popping in Austin's moment. She, she, as you know, I was saying earlier, maybe she doesn't write about them to the degree that some of us would now wish she had, but these questions are there and we are having a real opportunity through scholars like Gretchen Gerzina and Patricia Matthew and Manu Chandra and others who are helping us look back to the abolition movement, look back to texts like The Woman of Color, which Linda Dominique edited in a fabulous edition for Broadview Press, and everybody should run out and buy. This is a novel from 1809, anonymous novel. All of these works are giving us new opportunities to read Austen better in terms of race, issues that were important in her own day and to her novels, and for very good reasons have popped in ours. So I'm excited at the opportunity to open up these questions. And some of, you know, some of this is historians also. The Gretchen Garzina in a previous episode alerted me to the National Trust report that was done just sort of documenting the ties to the slave trade in these great houses in England. Such a simple thing, really, and very much a historic enterprise, not a political enterprise in, in, in any sense other than everything is political, right? But... Uh, that's exciting. And then you've also contributed to this conversation about the legacy of slavery and the ties to the slave trade in the Austin family. Do you want to talk 
about that at all? I mean, this is something that's just been published in the Times Literary Supplement and then picked up um, a lot of places. Uh, do you want to just give a takeaway on what was going on with, with your research on that and what you'd like people to keep in mind when they th think about Austin's family and the slave trade? Absolutely. So the, the May 21st issue of the Times Literary Supplement, which is a weekly newspaper that anyone who cares about literature should, should subscribe to. There's my plug for that. <laughs> Best literary weekly in the world. I am feel very honored to have published it. I did a, a piece on Austin and abolition, looking deeply and very minutely into the Austin family's relationship to slavery and abolition. And people are asking a question now, was Austin pro-slavery or anti-slavery? Was the Austin family pro-slavery or anti-slavery? And because of things like the National Trust report that you just mentioned, a freely available database called the Legacies of uh, Slavery that's run out of UCL by a Catherine by a scholar named Catherine Hall and a team. Yes. This, this is a, a freely available database. George Austin's mm -hmm. name shows up in that database because mm -hmm. he was a trustee for a, a sugar plantation in Antigua that was owned by somebody who was probably his student at Oxford. So this is the fact that we had and that has been repeated. The Austins were implicated in the economics of slavery. And what my piece did is try to look at what that means and to try to deepen that conversation. And what I, the takeaway for me is that the Austin family can be described as both pro-slavery and anti-slavery. And this is probably true for a lot of 19th century families, frankly, where you would have members who were on different sides, quote unquote, of these questions. But the moment we try to turn it into sides, we're missing an opportunity for further description and nuance. And what my piece mm -hmm. shows is that George Austin probably never benefited financially from this trusteeship. He was a co-trustee, and I go into a lot of description about that. And that years afterward, 80 years after that, Henry Thomas Austin, we never noticed this before, Henry Thomas Austin was a delegate to an anti-slavery convention. So we have a member of the immediate Austin family, a political activist against the slavery movement. And I mean, against the, against the uh, institution of slavery and with the anti-slavery movement. Um, so to me, this tells us that the Austin family was both of these things. And I think it's an additional piece of information for us to understand the ways that race and slavery come into Austin's novels and the ways that she is working with the difficulties and complexities of this issue that was central to the moment she lived in. What do you love most about introducing people to Austin? And what what, do you, what surprises you when you teach Austin with class in a classroom or in great courses from people that you hear, from all the many J-Night and fandom conversations that you so graciously you know drop in on and Zoom with? What what do you love about introducing people to Jane Austen? Yeah, uh, so these 24, 30 minute lectures I did for the great courses, which is interestingly just rebranded itself as Wondrium. But I say there, and I say this at the beginning of my classes as well, uh, I love these books. And I love the ways that these books have inspired me to be a better thinker, have created certain things in my life that have become possible and meaningful to me. But it is absolutely not required to me that anyone in my class come out loving them like I do. 
what I want is for students to find that thing that is meaningful to them and that generates generates meaning for them. That's generative, to go back to that word again. Uh, and I, I think when students take me at my word, I'm very grateful. Uh, I want them to read closely and think about these things, but it is absolutely not required that they see in them what I see. Awesome. You know, I would love to, next time we talk, or if you can come back on another season, I want to dig in further to just some of the things I've enjoyed from the lectures. You do a whole lecture on carriages, and we could do an entire podcast on (laughs) carriages, what they say about Regency customs, and just the whole, the marriage plots, the family you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation about terrible people and terrible parents, people being terrible to each other in the Regency world. I love that because people are still terrible to each other. So how Jane Austen gets through and gets us through is just kind of really fun to talk about. But maybe that's for next time. That would be wonderful. And, you know, maybe you want to put this in or leave this out. But, you know, your friendship over, it's more than a dozen years. How many years is it now? Do we dare even count? I know, crazy. Uh, It just is so meaningful to me and that I have memories of us walking through places in uh, where we are both, we're both located institutionally and places where Jane Austen was more closely located. Having the opportunity to walk through those spaces with you and to talk not only about literature, but about our lives and, and having a friendship with you that works on all those levels is just so amazing. And I'm so grateful for it. And the fact that you're doing this podcast just brings all of these things to many more people. And uh, I just, I honor you for it. And I'm so grateful to know you. Stephanie, thank you so much. You just make my year saying that. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's Great always to talk to you, such a pleasure to connect. I'm same, here. same. Okay. Thank okay. you, Stephanie. Talk to you right. soon. Take care, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Stephanie Lozer's upcoming book is Sister Novelists, Jane and Anna Mariah Porter in the Age of Austin, due out next year from Bloomsbury. She also wrote The Making of Jane Austen. She has a lecture series in The Great Courses. It's now called The Wondrium. You can find all of this and join Devonie's Substack newsletter about strong women at devonielozer.com. And you can also find us at austinconnection.substack.com and on Twitter at Austin Connect. Uh, you can also email us. Let us know what you thought of this conversation. We would love to hear from you and continue the conversation with you. Just reach out at austinconnection at gmail.com. Thanks for being here and connecting with the Austin Connection. Stay well.